Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 19. That's the passage that we'll be looking at today, Psalm 19. We're in a series of messages entitled, The Beauty of Belief. And in this series, we're looking at some theological concepts that are just kind of the basis for our faith uh, that, we, that we stand on in terms of our walk with Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at a, a concept that's not always included in discussions about, about theology, and that is the idea, the doctrine of nature, Psalm 19. These dear people are going to need some lights in this room if they're going to read their Bibles. So let's bring those lights up. All right. So um, here's the key concept for today. The natural world is God's creation, which He has entrusted into the care of humanity. God's creation. In the world, in the, in the, in the play, I should say, As You Like It by William Shakespeare, we hear that famous line, All the world's a stage and the men and women merely players. It's a profound thought. If I extend it a little bit and say, All creation is a stage, I will say that it's not just humanity that is on that stage. Creation itself is a part of the drama. Nature is telling us something. Nature is telling us to look past itself and look to the Creator who made all there is. David talks about that witness of creation in Psalm 19. He says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the vast expanse of all that has been made, we hear the witness of creation speaking to us and demonstrating for us the craftsmanship of God. A theology of creation that leads to a theology of nature is one of the points that distinguishes Christianity from other religions. You might assume that every ancient religion had a, a view in terms of creation and how things got started. And much is said in some circles about the, the similarities between the, the creation story in Genesis and some of the other stories in other cultures. However, one professor of the classic, classical literature points out that the way the Bible describes creation is actually unique among faith systems. He writes it this way, all of their myths, speaking about ancient religions, all of their myths do not reach the idea of creation in the Christian sense at all. When the curtain rises in the myths, there's always some properties that are already on the stage. But the question of who made them, who caused these first things to be, is rarely asked or answered. But in the Bible, we have the answer for that. It says all that has been created was simply spoken into existence by God, who said, let there be, and there was. And the Christian view of nature springs from that act of divine creation, a creation that is from nothing simply by God's will. Creation is God's doing, and such we value the world in which we live without assigning ultimate value to it because the ultimate value belongs to the Creator. 
And the point is that nature has a purpose. And the purpose is not only to be a place where humans can live, but nature is God's megaphone to humanity about who He is, what He has done for His glory, as is all of creation. And we need that megaphone. For if God did not initiate contact, contact with us, we would not know Him. We would sense the need to connect with something beyond ourselves. But that desire would be frustrated. We, it would be fruitless. We couldn't get there unless God reaches out to us. And He's done just that. He's guided us. Parents, uh, maybe you've played the hot and cold searching game with your kids. Maybe for a birthday present or a Christmas present or Easter candy in the basket, that kind of thing, where you hide something in the house somewhere and then you send your children off to search for it and as they get closer, you say, you're warmer, you're warmer. And if they move in the wrong direction, you say, you're getting colder. Now, there are a few different levels at which you can play that game. You can play it like I did for many years with our kids and simply put the present in the same place every year, year after year. Get it over with. It has the virtue of efficiency. Or you could really hide those presents. And those kids can walk around that house in frustration and pointless, fruitless searching over and over again until and unless you started giving them hints. You're getting warmer, or you're colder. Turn around again. You're pointing the way. And so it is with God. We need Him to point us to Himself. God has given us revelation that shows us the way, and revelation begins in His creation, in all that his, He has created, including nature. And then it gets more specific in His Word, the Bible. And then it gets even more specific in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. But the witness of nature is where it begins, and the witness of nature we call general revelation. And we call it general revelation for two reasons. First of all, because it's general in content. We learn some things about God, but we don't learn everything we need to know. We learn some things that He wants to communicate, but there's much that's left out. We learn, for instance, of His existence. There is a God. We learn of His creativity. We learn of His power. And in a sense, even from creation, we can sense His love because the world is orchestrated and designed for us to live here. In a general way, we learn about Him, but there's much that we don't find out from general revelation. We secondly call it general revelation because it's general in the audience. Everyone can see the witness of creation and nature. You do not have to be an American. You do not have to be educated. You don't even have to be a Christian to see God's work in the creation. You look at that work and it causes us to ask some questions. How did all this come to be? Why did all this come to be? That famous question. Why is there something rather than nothing? It all goes back to that. And when the witness of nature is combined with the specific revelation that we have in the Word of God, we learn that some of the world's philosophies concerning nature simply cannot be true. 
Let me share a few of them. First of all, pantheism cannot be true. Pantheism teaches that nature is God. Pantheism is the belief that nature itself is sacred because there's some sort of divine force that permeates all that is. It permeates the earth and the trees and the air and the rocks. This divine force is part which woven into creation. But the fact is that the witness of nature combined with the revelation of the Word tells us a very different story. The doctrine of God's creation separates Him from what He has made. John 1 verse 3, through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made. Creation and the Creator are not one and the same. Everything that is not God has been made by God. He is the only ultimate reality, the only eternal being. Nature is not divine. Another false view is dualism. That tells us nature is evil. It's kind of like the opposite of pantheism. Nature is not evil. Five times in creation, the narrative, we hear the words, and it was good. And at the end, and it was very good. Dualism is the idea that there are two eternal forces. One is for good and one is for evil. And they are at odds with one another. And in the Greek uh, idea of dualism, the physical world, the created world, is associated with the evil force, the, the lower force. It is the higher force, the spiritual force that is associated with the good and the blessing. So the quest is to reach for the divine, to escape the physical, to escape the material, to escape our natural world, and to become spirit. Dualism is a very simplified solution for the problem of evil. It says that the evil force is responsible for the bad that happens. The good force is responsible for the good that happens. And, if you, ha and you have to disassociate yourself with the natural world to become part of the divine. But God is the creator. And when he created and pronounced it good, it shows us that the natural world is not intrinsically evil. But we still have to account for the fact that there is evil in our world. So how do we do that? The Bible gives us the real answer for the existence of evil. And it boils down to the fact that when God made the, the, the pinnacle of His creation, human beings, He did so out of love. And true love is never forced love. True love always involves choice. It involves freedom. Thus, we were endowed with the ability to choose even if we were to choose evil. And that's what we did. That's what our ancestors in the Garden of Eden did. And that's what we do as we are prone to sin. But nature is not evil. Nature has had evil thrust upon it because of the reality of sin in the human heart. Dualism is wrong. The third false view is the false view you mainly encounter. The false view that is everywhere around us, and that is naturalism, that nature is all there is, that nature is a closed system. Naturalism teaches that everything has a natural cause, organic life, the physical world. This is all there is. There's nothing beyond. It's all a result of random forces, not guided or not initiated by any being that is beyond us. It just so happens that over long periods of time, stuff happened, and this is how it ended up. But the witness of the world, the witness of the Word, 
and the witness of millions of human beings in their response to what they see in the world and the universe is that actually creation is a window to that which is beyond. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's worth noting that every civilization in every age in any language group, they've all had a concept of God because humanity across the ages has accepted the fact that the order of what I see around me, the magnitude and the majesty of what I see in the heavens and in the world demands and points to a creator. Paul addressed it in Romans, Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. It is general revelation, what we see all around us, and the way it works on the human heart that explains mankind's worldwide, history-long inclination for some kind of religion. However, our perceptions of the world we live in are affected by the reality of sin and affected by the battle that we're in with our enemy, Satan. Once again, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. See, to rightly see the message that, that creation is giving and understand what general revelation points to and the Bible speaks about, we need to do what John Calvin said years ago, we need to put on the spectacles of faith. And once you put on the spectacles of faith, you begin to see all that is around you in a different light. It comes into perspective. I was once in a museum of art, and in this particular museum of art, you could get close up to the pictures to the paintings. You, you weren't allowed to touch them, and they had big, burly, uniformed people who stopped you if where you were going like this, but you could get it right up close. And uh, I, I was walking through the different galleries, and each of the galleries had a particular theme, the kind of uh, paintings that were in that particular gallery, and this one had, was filled with what they called impressionistic paintings. And I was real close to this one painting, and I looked at it, and you know, it looked like a bunch of dots and dabs and splashes to me. Didn't really make sense. See, I have a very kind of mundane view of art. I, my, my, my policy is this. If I could possibly do it, it's not art. <laughs> you know? It's just, that's, that's just the rule of thumb. Like, you know, I go in some modern art, you go in and there's a big white square with a red dot in the middle. No way. I don't give credit just because you thought of it first. That's not art. That's not art. Anyway, so, so I wasn't really getting this impressionistic painting, you know, but I was not having the right perspective. I needed to walk back, and as I walked back, the, those dots and dabs and splashes, all of a sudden I saw the image that the artist was, was bringing to life in this painting. It's the same thing about, about understanding what God is doing in creation. Without faith, we're not able to see the right perspective. We don't get the right message. The one who rejects the idea of God and who believes that nature, naturalism is all that there is and everything that we see around us is a product of just blind chance. Give it enough time. It'll just work out this way. No purpose behind it. That person gives us a hopeless and bleak picture of the universe and a hopeless and bleak picture of humanity.
and it is all around you. But understand that for many, it is the very unattractiveness of the view that pulls them towards it without the perspective of faith. Because it's, there's almost a smugness, almost a puffing up of the chest saying, you know, I believe what I believe because I'm a realist. You're just not brave enough to face how bleak things really are. One author writes it this way, it is so depressing that it must be true. All else is wishful thinking. No, it does not have to be that way. In the beginning, God. Naturalism is wrong. Nature is not all there is. So what is true about nature? Point number one, nature invites us to look past it. Nature invites us to use it as a window to see the Creator. The Bible teaches us that God created all that there is, and He did so in a way that theologians down through the ages have come to, do, to label ex nihilo. Ex nihilo creation, it means out of nothing. There were not pre-existing bits of stuff floating around that God used to create. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The whole point of the telling of that uh, act of creation is for you to feel the power of God. No effort for Him to create. Just speak. Just will it, and it will happen. And that pattern is repeated over and over again. He simply wills things into being from nothing. He wills it. He speaks it. And immediately it comes to pass. You're meant to be impressed with how beyond you this being is. Understand the setting of this. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. He wrote that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness wanderings. Where had they been for the last 400 years? They'd been in Egypt. The memories of the, of the, of their, uh, uh, of the, of the patriarchs were very dim in their minds. For 400 years, they'd been influenced by the, the, the theological system of Egypt, talking about the gods of Egypt. Remember when Moses encounters the burning bush, he says, who shall I say is sending me? You know, they're, they're very confused. There was no Bible before that, Okay. They had the oral tradition of the patriarchs, and now as, as Moses is writing the, the creation story, he's trying to explain to them, this is the nature of the God who is leading you out of slavery into freedom. He speaks, and everything comes to be. That's the kind of God that is your God. It means that creation is an act of the will of the ultimate being. He is neither forced nor, nor coerced. What He wants to have happen, happens. He creates, and now the creation allows us to look into it and see its systems. And this is why science works. This is why scientists can observe and create hypotheses based on what they observe and theories that they, they use to figure out how things work. 1936, Albert Einstein said this, the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. How we can understand things, how the systems are ordered, is because they reflect an ordered mind of the Creator. 
We can study its systems and we can understand and therefore we can have science. There is no contradiction between faith and science. In fact, in order to use science as a weapon against faith, you have to smuggle in some non-scientific presuppositions like, quote, matter is all that has ever was and all that ever will be. Some of you are old enough to recognize that's the lead line in Carl Sagan's PBS series, uh, The Cosmos. That is not a science statement. That is a philosophical statement. Theology and science ask questions of similar things, but we look at those things from a different points of view. So, so let's take the uh, illustration of a birthday cake. Now you have a birthday cake. The scientific analysis approach could be put onto that birthday cake, and they'll give you a chemical analysis of the cake, an analysis of the physical properties of the cake. They'll even be able to take chemistry and biology and tell you why that cake will taste good when you put it in your mouth, right? But that analysis will not tell you the reason for the cake. It's a different kind of inquiry, inquiry of purpose and meaning, question of the reason for the cake is a different question. Faith asks different questions and demands a different level of thinking and explanation, but it's not in conflict with science. And science by its very nature is always changing, always adapting, adjusting to new discoveries, new insights based on new tests so new hypotheses can be proven or disproven. And theories can be changed or held on to. And that's how it should be. Good science changes. But God never changes. Nature points us to the unchanging God. Allows us to come to recognize His existence. Gives us hints about who He is. But it doesn't tell us everything. Imagine for a moment that I visited a house and I was so impressed with this house that I wanted to know the architect who designed this house. How would I do that? Well, I could visit all the houses that this architect has made, carefully come to know the, the techniques that he uses, the materials that he prefers, and styles and so forth, but that wouldn't actually introduce me to the architect. I would just know that he's a really good architect and that he exists. Now, if he has written some books, I could read all the books, learn about his life, learn about his thoughts, his, in, his inner thoughts and the way he works and so forth. But once again, that would just let me know more about the architect. I would be impressed with him, but I wouldn't know him. For that to happen, I need to meet him in order to really know him. So I might invite the architect over for dinner. I might call him, but he has to respond. Otherwise, I will never know him. See, in the story, God is the architect. He has created that which is admirable and wonderful and glorious, and He has written a book about Himself so that we could know more and more about Him. But He has taken that next step. He has come. He has initiated a relationship so that we can not just know about Him, know Him in a relationship of faith, personally know Him. That's the essence of Christianity, God rescuing humanity back into a relationship with Himself. And what I'm saying is this all begins, the discovery of this begins as we understand what the witness of nature is and creation all around us. 
So what is our responsibility towards nature? We need to understand as human beings that God has entrusted nature as a stewardship to us. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Some insights about that passage. The word subdue there pictures a conquering king who subdues a population after conquest and rules over them. See, God recognizes that there will be some rebellious, even violent forces in nature that will need to be tamed and understood. He gives humanity that responsibility. He gives that that job to us. He is the ultimate ruler. We are his representative here. But subdue doesn't mean destroy. Rule doesn't mean abuse. Humans are not placed on the earth in an exploitive role. We are placed here to represent the true owner. We are placed here to let nature live out its purpose and be that window to the glory of God that it was meant to be and a habitat for those he loves. And all the world, therefore, is a stage. We're part of the drama. We see God at work all around us. As we appreciate nature as God's handiwork and care for it in the way that he wants us to, we honor his intention as our king and our creator. But he is the ultimate owner of all that is. So I draw to a conclusion with words from a hymn that I grew up singing. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have allowed us to live in your world, that you've entrusted the stewardship of this world to us. Lord, we pray that we would be those who put on the spectacles of faith. When we look outside in the beauty of today, the blue sky, this evening we'll see the stars and the heavens And Lord, we pray that we recognize your handiwork. We pray that we appreciate your craftsmanship, that we are humbled by your power. And Lord, we rejoice that even in all that you are, you love us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We rejoice in you. In your name we pray. Amen.